I'm your host, Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron. A military history podcast. And in today's episode, we're covering the Battle of Kadesh. From Megiddo to Kadesh, almost 200 years passed with Egypt at the pinnacle of its power. From modern-day Sudan to the southern border of modern-day Turkey, Egypt reigned supreme. Now, they weren't unchallenged, and certainly like their life-giving river itself, things were often in flux. There were uprisings, rebellions, and border fighting happened regularly, and land and territory was lost just as often as it was gained, but even so, the people of the Nile maintained their control over much of the modern Middle East. The chariot, which was brought to Egypt on the conquering tide of the Hyksos invasion and retooled and perfected by the Egyptians themselves, was in large part what brought Egyptian freedom from the foreign oppressors at home and victory in Egyptian dominance abroad. At Megiddo, this engineering marvel, the Egyptian war chariot, showed the world what it could do to an unequal enemy. At Kadesh, the last great clash of chariots showed the world that this unique weapon system had reached its peak and would soon, in relative historical terms, be outdated and surpassed. But for one great, glorious late May day on the plains outside of Kadesh, the pharaoh Ramses II, who would later be known to his progeny and his people as the Great Ancestor, saved his army and his reputation from the back of his chariot. Or at least that's what he wanted us to think. Groups of migrants, it's been speculated from southern Russia and the Ukraine, drifted into the Anatolia region sometime before 2000 BCE. Over the following centuries, the myriad little kingdoms and city-states consolidated through conquest and assimilation into a unified, if turbulent, state called the Hittite Empire. Ruling the land that we know as Turkey in northern Syria, the Hittites proved a resilient and resourceful counterweight to Egyptian power in the Levant region. The Hittite heartland was rich with natural resources, especially precious metals, and their control of a large Mediterranean coastline made them an economic powerhouse. It was their attempts at elongating that coastline and expanding their trade network into the southern and eastern part of the Middle East that eventually brought the Hittite king Muatali II into direct con confrontation with Egypt and Ramses II. The city of Kadesh, located in southern modern-day Syria on the border with Lebanon, sits in a perfect spot to control trade routes going north and south and east and west. Long a power in its own right, Kadesh traded hands often during the long struggle between the Hittites and the new kingdom of Egypt. Whichever side could take the city and hold it would likely control the entire region, itself a sea of minor kingdoms and fickle vassals that regularly had to be beaten or bought for one side to control it or the other. Highlighting the seesaw nature of fighting in the region, at some point in the years before the Battle of Kadesh, Pharaoh Seti I, with his son and heir, Ramses II, who was also his co-regent, was on campaign and took both Kadesh and the Amuru kingdom. Between that time and then Ramses' full accession to the throne, 
Kadesh and possibly Amuru too, both fell back under Hittite sway. Then in the fourth year of his reign, Ramses II campaigned in Canaan. That's the region that's modern-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon area. And this expedition may have been a probe into the area to test the Hittites and their strength and the loyalty of those vassal kingdoms that were so fickle. In May of his fifth year, 1247 BCE, Ramses ordered his army to move against the city of Kadesh and destroy the Hittites wherever they found them. Note about dating here. I, there's another source I have that's at 1285. This, uh, the main couple sources I used said uh, 1274. So it's, I think there's some kind of dating uh, issue that different historians might go off of. Um, I'm going to stick with the 1274, so that's what we're going to use moving forward. Ramses II's army was 20,000 men strong and had 2,000 chariots. The whole force was broken into four divisions, each of 5,000 infantry and 500 chariots. Now, this is one of many firsts that we have here at Kadesh. Just like with Megiddo and, uh, and, and Bad Uma and Lagash, these early battles are full of firsts, um, and Kadesh is no different. Because here we actually have written records that exist today that tell us not just what the armies were made up of, what they, you know, what they were formed of, but it also relays blow-by-blow blow tactical information from the account of people that were there. And then on top of that, as we'll see at the end, this led to one of the first diplomatic agreements in that in recorded history and again there's a there's an actual copy of that, of that agreement that exists so uh, again one of many firsts at Kadesh we have reasonably accurate numbers for both armies and for the first time we have a blow-by-blow -blow of the tactical events as they unfolded and although there are some major discrepancies between the carvings made in Egypt both the poem and the bulletin commissioned by Ramses II upon his return, uh, which, you know, both of those make it sound like Ramses was the sole victor on the field of battle and a warrior god incarnate, and the records found in Turkey um, are, are not exactly the same, but enough of the details match for uh, a fairly well-grounded deductions to be made about what occurred. So back to the Egyptian army, it, it, was, it was broken up into four... 5,000-man infantry divisions. Uh, we know so much detail about the battle that we can even name Ramses' divisions. He had the Amun division, the Ra, the Set, and the Ta. Uh, and the Amun is going to be his, uh, kind of his chosen division. It's going to travel with him most of the time. Along with this traditional national army, Ramses brought a contingent of mercenaries called the Shirdin, or uh, the Sea Peoples. He also dispatched a division of mercenaries, possibly from the Canaan region, called the Nairn, which might mean young. And they were sent to guard the coastal route um, uh, while he and the main army moved through modern-day Israel and Syria towards Kadesh. Against this invading force from Egypt was an equally powerful coalition of maybe as many as 20 regional powers, all vassals of the Hittite king Muatali. He too had maybe as many uh, as 20,000 men under him, and it's believed that Muatali's chariot force outnumbered the Egyptians with maybe as many as 3,000 uh, individual vehicles. Muatali understood that his heavier three-man chariots, if used in a hammer blow, 
could potentially break their opponent's lighter chariots and send them fleeing. If he could devise a way to slam into the Egyptians while they were weakest uh, and, and most vulnerable and use overwhelming weight and force on one portion of the enemy army at a time, Muatali figured he would win the day. And it's with that idea that the Hittite king set his brilliant trap. But first, let's talk about the, the weapon system that is the Egyptian chariot. Now, I can't recommend enough this uh, Nova special called Building Pharaoh's Chariot. Uh, it refers mostly to the chariots of uh, Megiddo and Tutmosis III, but that really didn't change very much, or that particular type of chariot didn't change much between the time of Tutmosis III and Ramses II. Um, and what they do is they kind of break down the chariot and the component parts and kind of go into the process of recreating one of these vehicles. Uh, one of the presenters is Mike Lodes, and if you don't know this guy, he is a beast. He's been around for years as a military history presenter and weapons specialist. If you haven't already or you don't know who he is, check him out. The man exudes an energy and passion for the past like few other people. Uh, the premise of the show is that a team of specialists, they, they have a horse trainer and a carriage maker, and uh, they set out to recreate a historically accurate chariot appropriate to the time of the New Kingdom. And they have, uh, you know, a time constraint. I think it's only a couple weeks or maybe a, a month or two. And the process is, is really elaborate. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of unique pieces and individual pieces that go into making a chariot that have to be steamed. The wood has to be the right, uh, you know, it has to be the right kind of wood, nice and supple and, and, and willing to work with steam. Uh, and then they have to bend these pieces so that they're one continuous uh, individual piece. Uh, it's it's actually really cool. They do it in a lot of, or close to as possible, um, traditional ways. And the the chariot that the Egyptians took off the invaders, uh, the Hyksos, uh, they, they modified the design in some really clever ways. The suspension system was improved with a simple tweak to the platform base, which allowed for a steadier, more smooth ride and obviously a better firing platform. The wheel spokes went from only having four uh, to six, and in even some cases they would use eight spokes, again creating a smoother ride and a more sturdy vehicle. The Egyptian chariot was incredibly light. It was around 70 to 75 pounds, which one man can lift that easily and, and two men can make it a, you know, it's, it's nothing. Uh, and they could reach really, really incredible speeds for the time, so 20, 25 miles an hour. Next time you get a chance, drive 25 miles an hour with your window fully down your arm out. It's pretty fast. It's, you know, it's, it's fast enough to really do damage if you were to hit somebody. Uh, and they could also go fairly far for a day. You know, a chariot force could travel 20 to 30 miles in a day. Another modification that was, um, that was made by the Egyptians, according to... The Nova Special. Now, it might, I, I read conflicting um, accounts in some of my sources. They say that the, uh, the depiction of the chariot with the wheel in the center was to save space, but uh, according to the historians on this particular special, the Egyptians actually slid the axle back from the center of the firing platform to the very back of the chariot itself. 
uh, which gave the chariot again increased stability and improved maneuverability for turns. These were, uh, and and that's one thing to really think about when you when you consider the Egyptian chariot is these were fast, agile, uh, essentially the tanks of their day. Uh, they would on the back of the chariot would be a driver holding the reins and a shield to protect the warrior, and the warrior would be standing next to him. Uh, most likely with a composite bow firing down on on the enemy with the reins wrapped around him and one leg maybe in the uh, the cutout on the side of the chariot uh, to kind of give him a steady solid perch to fire from uh, the the idea or the the attacking um, tactic of these chariot units would against massed infantry again horses aren't going to charge massed infantry or very rarely uh, in history do they do that effectively uh, so instead what chariots would do is they would use the chariots mobility and agility by charging the enemy all while firing on them and then from 20 or 30 yards they would turn really quickly like on a dime and then continue firing as they they you know run away and then they just keep doing that looping back uh, again and again and again, and in these tight firing circles and, and in mass formation against infantry, this would have been almost a constant barrage, pinning or harassing them until the Egyptian infantry could strike home. Especially if this is coming from the rear or the flank, uh, it would have been uh, withering fire. And when fighting other chariots, the Egyptian chariot would most likely have uh, lined up, up opposite the opposing chariot units. They would have most likely left gaps, and the two lines would fight as they passed and then turn and repeat over and over and over until one side breaks or, uh, you know, one side just can't make the turn. There's nobody left. This is, again, one of those things that we really don't know how the mechanics of ancient warfare worked, uh, and it's it's partially highlighted here uh, it's really hard without getting 3,000 chariots together and 20,000 men to figure out exactly how this would have functioned what are whether the actual me mechanics and physics of ancient combat but against these nimble death dealers the the Hittite chariot was bigger uh, bulkier and less maneuverable but not less deadly uh, the larger platform of the Hittite chariot allowed for a driver, a shield barrier, and a warrior firing arrows or more often using javelins or a spear. So the two platforms had their pros and cons. Uh, these were, you know, the, the high-tech weapons of their day for both sides. Uh, and for a moment at Kadesh, this was uh, the, the high watermark of chariot warfare. Once you have... 2,000 chariots fighting 3,000 chariots, like, uh, it, it's hard to, it, it's impossible to imagine or picture in your mind's eye um, without just being kind of overawed by the spectacle and the chaos, all the dust, all the noise, just, it, it would have been um, an incredible sight to, to behold if, if you weren't on the ground. I wouldn't want to be there, but uh, it would be one of those hot air balloon floating above it kind of situations where taking it in from a safe spot would be, uh, it would just be an incredible spectacle. So picture in your mind's eye the letter Y, capital letter Y, flipped upside down. That's going to be the River Orantes. And the two arms where they meet in the middle, that 
little space right at the tip of that triangle, that's where Kadesh sits on a hilltop. So on the north, the east, and the west, the city was protected by water. The area around was relatively flat scrub and farmland. It was good marching ground, good fighting ground. Ramses II was moving towards Kadesh with his division split up in a column. So each division was in a line behind the other one. And this is something that Napoleon would easily have recognized. He got it. He understood that each unit operating on its own was easier to supply and moved quicker than if the entire mo army moved as one. The danger here is that, as we shall see, uh, the lack of contact with the leader and clear communications, and then the potential for the isolation and annihilation of individual units is way, way higher when the divisions are, when the army split up into divisions, first of all, and then also when they're moving in a column. And these are, again, these are the same kind of problems and pros and cons situations that Napoleon and Robert E. Lee would have fully understood and appreciated the complexities of, you know, a few thousand years later. Ramses reached the small town of Shabtuna, south of Kadesh, and it's here that the pharaoh walked himself into Muwatali's trap. Ramses brought a couple of local nomads that had been taken in for questioning up and wanted to hear what they had to say. The spies were questioned and told the pharaoh that he basically had nothing to worry about. Muwatali and his whole army was over 100 miles away at Aleppo. Now, Ramses II is a fascinating guy on his own. Uh, he lives until he's 90. Uh, he basically is the last true great pharaoh. He's known as the great pharaoh. Uh, he built whole cities, conquered far and wide. He's friggin' Ozymandias, um, you know, and yet he's also human. And when he hears what he wants to hear, like the rest of us, that sometimes is all we need to be foolish and do something dumb. So Ramses II hears that his enemy is 120 miles or so away in a different city, uh, and he hears it from these two nomads who are, in fact, in the pay of the Hittite king and spies, uh, and he thinks he's got a golden opportunity to take the city without much of a fight. Uh, so Ramses grabs his chosen division, Amun, and hightails it across the Orontes River to a position north and west of the city. This way, he could place himself and his army between Kadesh and Muwatali, hopefully forcing the city to surrender, but at the very least keeping his enemy from a strong defensive position. Ramses also sends for the Nairn force uh, on the coast to get back as soon as possible so that they might uh, bolster him and, and maybe be a reserve if he needs it. Now, keep in mind, that Nairn force that he had... Uh, kind of uh, garrisoning the coastal region will come in huge and, and plays a, a fairly large role in the, the way that Kadesh kind of unfolds. Once at a good point to camp, Ramses settles in and sends out some scouts, almost as a perfunctory thing, because he probably doesn't really need to, or at least that's what he thinks. His enemies... <laughs> A good amount, good few days march from where he is, so he doesn't really need to do the scouting thing, but he'll do it anyways. And while his scouts are out uh, well, scouting, 
Um, the rest of the Egyptian army is moving in a column towards the camp to join the pharaoh. But again, they're somewhat strung out on the, in their divisions. There's, there's gaps, there's space in between them, uh, and they are moving in a, in a form, you know, as a column where it'll be hard for them to assist each other if, uh, if one of them is in trouble. And while he waits for the rest of the army to arrive, Ramses is shocked to find a couple of his scouts dragging in a couple of Hittite scouts. Either they're very, very lost, or the Hittite scouting game is significantly more intense than anyone else's at the time. Uh, well, Ramses finds out that after torturing these scouts, neither of those things is true, and in fact, the scouts are pretty close to their home base because it's just on the other side of the city of Kadesh. The entire Hittite army, all 20,000 infantry and 3,000 chariots, is drawn up and ready to rumble, and Muatali has pulled a fast one on the great pharaoh. With full, complete surprise achieved, Muatali was able to roll out his plan for destroying the pharaoh and his army. As the second division, the Ra division, made its way towards camp, they reached the banks of the river and were slammed in the flanks by the full force of 2,000 heavy chariots. As always, the majority of casualties in battle, especially ancient battle, are taken in the panic of defeat. And once a force runs, especially infantry, the mobile units pursuing can wreak havoc. They rack up staggering body counts. Ra took the onslaught probably for a few brief moments and then shuddered and shattered. Chaos ensued as Egyptians ran for their lives in every direction with the thundering heavy Hittite chariots spearing and crushing them at every turn. Another classic compounding issue of defeat occurred at this point, because as Ramses and his men of the Amon division are looking on and watching helplessly as the Ra division is cut to pieces, the fleeing men stampede towards the safety of the camp and the pharaoh. In the process, they mob the Amon division, totally disorganizing it, and with the Hittites in close pursuit, the tactical defeat quickly becomes a total disaster. The Set and Ta divisions are still moving as quickly as they can to the fight, but they are a river crossing and further away, and with the looming Hittite army now on their flank, they have to move cautiously, ready for an assault at any moment. And with his kingdom flashing before his eyes, and this is accounted for by both sides, so we know it, it probably did happen, Ramses gathers his royal guards and whatever men are still sane and capable of fighting, and he launches a last-ditch attack. If he dies in the process, he'll die a warrior's death. But the same thing that robbed his ancestor of total victory at Megiddo probably saved Ramses's bacon at Kadesh. As the Hittite chariots get in among the Egyptian camp, they start to break off from the attack to loot whatever they could find. Ramses used this to his advantage, and his attack started to push the Hittite force back. Muatali still had a thousand chariots fresh and ready, and at this point he threw them into the counterattack to try and crush the last-ditch defenses of Ramses. Well, now, here's where we get that Nairn group back, because like a good scene-stealing actor, they had perfect timing and knew how to make an entrance. While Ramses was scrambling to deal with this fresh onslaught of the Hittite chariots, the Nairns slammed into the Hittite flank. 
The tables had officially turned, and now the Hittite force crumbled and ran for their lives. Some lost their heads entirely and tried to run on foot and swim across the Orontes River, many drowning in the process. With their fast-moving and quick-firing chariots, the Egyptians had the ideal weapon system for pursuit, and it showed. They slaughtered the broken enemy army in droves, but because the Hittite infantry force was unused, Muatali still had a considerable army on the field, and he now withdrew into the confines of the city. So Ramses had the field, but was too weakened by his Pyrrhic victory to do much with it. After what was likely a half-hearted siege, if one took place at all, the sources are kind of confused there, the pharaoh was forced from the field and went home to the Nile. The Hittite losses were high and expensive given that they were almost exclusively among the charioteers. And Ramses also had an expensive butcher's bill among both his chariots and infantry. The Egyptian attempts at penning in Hittite expansion failed, but neither country had the wherewithal or desire or even the ability to continue the fight. A little bit of border uh, conflict happened over the next 15 to 20 years, but it, it eventually became apparent that neither side was going to become a clear out-and-out -out winner against the other. So the first diplomatic agreement and written peace treaty that we know of in history was signed and agreed upon. And actually, this is kind of cool. There's a surviving copy in a museum in Istanbul, as well as a replica that hangs in, at the United Nations to remind people that even way back then, sometimes people could come together and figure out that peace was better. So both Egypt and the Hittites remained powers in the regions for a good time after the battle, but soon there was another power knocking on the door, and that would be the Assyrians. Uh, once the Assyrians came on the stage, the Hittites would essentially uh, would actually cease to exist, and the Egyptians would be forced to bow to the new powerful empire on the block. Had Egypt lost at Kadesh and Ramses died, who knows? Maybe the Hittites would fill the power void, take Egypt, and become a miniature superpower? If they had, it likely wouldn't have lasted because uh, they they had a very unstable or there was a lot of instability in their heartland, in their home, and uh, the Egyptians also had an unnerving ability to uh, culturally seduce conquerors and, and kind of bait-and-switch them, which would have probably flipped the script at some point. Regardless, it was at Kadesh that the chariot had its finest, last, swirling, darting moment. Never again would mass chariots be the sole mobile striking force of one or the other side, as on the horizon, the lone horseman, the cavalry itself, was soon to take its place. That doesn't mean chariots died or disappeared. Obviously, we see them even in uh, Darius the Great's time and Alexander, but as really effective uh, weapon systems go, uh, this was about where the, the end of the line for the chariot was. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, please check out the social medias. We've got a TikTok with great commanders. We've got an Instagram with a whole bunch of different things going on. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. We are live streaming every Wednesday at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. This past week, we talked to a couple Egyptologists and archaeologists that have actually worked in the field, and they are at Minam Archaeology. Uh, definitely worth checking out both their Instagram and their website. They have a lot of great uh, articles and images. 
Uh, next up, so next week, we are talking about the Battle of Troy. And we're going to cover both. The little that we do know about the real Battle of Troy and the great deal that we do know about the uh, mythical Battle of Troy. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great night. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.